into. Hey, church, are you ready for some impractical stuff? Good. I hope you're ready. If you have your Bible with you, I hope you do. Let's turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And I don't know if you realize it or not, the Christmas season is here. The, the music has begun. The lights are going up in your neighborhoods. Uh, how many of you in the room have a Christmas tree in your house and it's decorated? Wow. First service is a bunch of slackers. You know, I asked them, how many have a Christmas tree? Like all their hands and it's decorated. They all went down. I was like, get on it. You know, it's, there's a lot going on. It's, and it's a great time of year. But one thing that churches are doing all over the city is they're advertising their Christmas Eve services. And they're advertising them on uh, Facebook, on Instagram, because they want to make sure the most number of people gets to that service. They're trying to make sure it looks as attractive as possible, and I don't blame them, because they're trying to get as many people to that service as possible. It's all over Instagram. Well, this week, on Instagram, I saw a tongue-in-cheek post about the, quote, light church. Well, they said it's got 24% fewer commitments. Their tithe is only 7.5%. 15-minute sermons, 45-minute messages, and full services. They have only eight commandments, and you get to pick them, right? They said they only have three spiritual laws in an 800-year millennium. So, and they, they called it, it's everything you've wanted in the church and less. And when I read that, it did make me smile when I saw that on, on Instagram. But it did make me wince a little as well, if I'm honest. Because the person who posted it was poking fun at the incredible sense of shallowness that seems to be creeping into the church today. A profession-based Christianity that acknowledges good orthodoxy, which means you've been in Bible studies since Moses was a child, which means you, you understand the Word of God. You might have even memorized parts of it, but you memorized it in order to win an award, maybe at Awana or for some other reason, but it's certainly not because you wanted to arm yourself. Certainly not because you wanted to protect your heart. Certainly not because you wanted to guide others. The, po the person who posted that picture on Instagram was hitting on the possibility that while we as a church might know a lot of things, we aren't living differently because of those things. Not even during the Christmas season. And it got me thinking, has the church today created an easy believism gospel? Like, I wonder if pastors, and I'll just use the American church for a second, has just said, hey, I'm going to pray a prayer. You pray it after me. Say exactly what I say. And, and then you receive Jesus. You check a box. You don't go to hell. It's great kind of faith. Like, and people are like, well, you know, that sounds fantastic. I don't want to go to hell, so like, let's do that. And there's no sense of discipleship. There's no sense of counting the cost. There's no sense of true repentance. There's no sense of the understanding of depravity. No recognition of the holiness of God. And therefore, there's no accurate view of justification by faith. 
No sense of sanctification, no sense of the ongoing following of Jesus. We simply are here just to hang around and wait for Jesus' return. And we say things like, you know, but Kevin, we sing Kumbaya really well. Right? We have awesome worship teams, and, and, and we have uh, great potlucks, and there's this right blend at my church of casual and, and formal service or whatever, but there's no sense of ongoing growth, of missional living, that my life has been bought with a price. That my life has actually been bought with a price that I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me that I'm called to be the very hands and feet of Jesus. And sometimes I wonder, if we're not careful, I wonder if we're creating lukewarm, tepid, gross, gross apathetic religious experiences. And I don't know about you, but I didn't sign up for that. I'm not given the best years of my life for that. Because as I read my Bible, that's not what I see in the text. What I see as I read is that God is taking lives and totally renovating them and causing them to live differently in this world. I see in the text a sense that you cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ with a true understanding of the gospel and live as if you've not been transformed. I don't see that, but I think it's happening all over the place in our world today. People coming to Christ and still desperately hanging on to sin. People coming to Christ, but there's not a sense of abandonment for the sake of the king. There's no sense of denying self and taking up our cross. We're still trying to carry our own stuff in the name of Jesus. And it's a problem because it's leading to massive consequences in the church. And one of those consequences is we are simply propagating more and more the hypocritical stereotype that has kept so many people away from the church for centuries. It perpetuates to just come to Jesus Christ, but you can still party with your buddies on Saturday night as long as you get up and make it to church on time, at least by the 1130 service, and that's okay. That's not okay, according to God's word. Or you could be married, and if you're unhappy in your marriage, you know, God wants you happy, so it's okay then to divorce for pretty much any reason at all. According to the text, that's not okay. Or it's okay to drink some extra wine and to get a little drunk, but don't call it drunk, just call it tipsy. Like, just call it a, a little bit of a buzz, and that's okay. It's no big deal. According to the Bible, big deal. It's not okay. But in our desire to be as close to the world as we can and to look and act as much like the world as we possibly can, we reject the notion of obedience. We reject this notion that we should be set apart for Christ. Too many believers, because of that, are living powerless, conformed lives. They claim one thing and their actions are doing something completely different. And when you begin to look at it biblically, here's where it gets kind of fuzzy for so many Christians. Uh, salvation biblically is clearly by faith alone. Amen? Amen? 
Okay, you said good morning way more. <laughs> so let me, I'll, I'll make that a statement, not a question. Salvation biblically is clearly by faith alone. That's what it says. Make no mistake about it. It is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Therefore, we did not come to Christ based on any moral work that we did. And that really should be good news, because it's not like Kevin, it's not, it's not like God saw me, Kevin, in my neighborhood and said, wow, Kevin is the best person in his neighborhood, I'll take him. He, didn't, uh, he did not say that, nor did he look at me and say, well, that neighborhood is a hot mess, and he's the, the least hot mess of all the messes, so I guess I have to take him. That's not it either. That's not what he did at all. No, the Bible says that he chose us not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness. That's Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so no one can boast. So salvation is a gift. Amen? Good. It's Christmas. Salvation is a gift. You've been given the best gift ever by God. And you did nothing to earn it. But here's the kicker. James begins right here in chapter 2 to introduce the idea that authentic faith, authentic faith, shows itself in how we live. That genuine faith isn't just orthodoxy, it's orthopraxy. That's what he's saying. And what he's going to suggest is that if we claim to be Christians and have good doctrine, but we don't live it, he says our faith is dead. He says our faith is useless, which is interesting theologically because if you look at James chapter 2, verse 24, it seems to imply that we are justified by works. When you look at that, and not by faith alone. So it begs the question, does the Bible contradict itself? Like do, we, like, do we need to get Paul and James in a good old-fashioned cage match? Like, let them fight it out, and whoever wins at the end gets to decide? Paul says faith. James says by works. What does it mean? How do you reconcile these things? Well, when you come to stuff like that, there's a few things we have to make sure we remember. I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying it. First thing we have to remember is Scripture interprets Scripture. That's how we do it. Always remember that. There are 66 books of the Bible, all with supernatural continuity, meaning there's not a single concept in your Bible that you cannot support elsewhere in Scripture. Meaning, if you read your Bible and you come up with a brand new thought no one's ever thought about before, you've had too much greasy pizza, that is not what it means, and you need to go back and figure it out because that's how the Bible works. It's divinely inspired. That's the beauty of God's Word. It checks itself book by book. That's why it's called the Bible. Second thing to remember is when you come up with a controversial passage, and you're not sure what it means, the less clear passage needs to be interpreted in light of that which is more clear. So if you're not sure what it says, like people read Hebrews chapter 6, and they totally lose their mind. They think, I can lose my salvation? What? That's not what it says. So you read the other texts that talk about the assurance of salvation, those which are much more clear, and let those passages shine a light on the current text you are reading in order to bring it into clarity. 
And finally, you can never skip the context because the context usually gives you clues to the correct interpretation. This is going to be a little controversial. I hope it isn't, but it oftentimes is. Your Bible has one interpretation. The Bible has one interpretation. Not many, one. There's an intended meaning of the text. And for the most part, God says what he means and means what he says. You don't have to eat enough um, Captain Crunch to get the secret decoder ring to figure out what God is saying. He says what he means and means what he says. So the challenge that we have is to find out the author's intent. Well, what's he trying to say? But if there's only one meaning, there are many applications. So when you get together in your Bible study groups and the person looks at you and says, hey, what does this passage mean to you? What does this passage mean to you? And what does this passage mean to you? That is terrible Bible reading skills. The question should be, hey, everybody, what does the passage mean? And then how does that truth apply to you? That's how you do it. There's a meaning to the text, but each person might have a different Holy Spirit-led application in their life, but it'll be in congruence with the meaning of the text. And so here, when you look at the book of James, the first question we have to ask is, what's the context? And you know this because we're partway through the study of James. James is the brother of Jesus. He's not a theologian. He's not Paul. He didn't go to all the best schools and have all the best teaching. That's not, he's not trained like Paul. So James is the practical guy. James is like a plumber. He's good old blue collar, man. That's where he sits. So Paul, when he talks, he like scrapes the Milky Way theologically. And you're like, what? You know, and he's got these big truths that we're trying to wrestle with. James, on the other hand, gets right down to the practical and says, hey, what does this look like in your living room? I mean, that's great, like talking about all that stuff, but what does this look like in your workplace? Like, what does this look like in your school? What does this look like in your everyday life? And this is going to be helpful to remember as we unpack this message. The second thing he can't be saying is that we lose our salvation because the clearer passages inform the less clear. So can I encourage you, if you can lose your salvation and you have small children, you've lost your salvation before you got to church this morning. And all the young parents just said amen because you're like, get in the car, you know, right? Yeah, everybody's fired up trying to get to church on a Sunday morning. If that's the case, if you can lose your salvation, it's already happened. That's not what the text says. If scripture interprets scripture, then passages like John chapter 10 become very important in this regard where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Very clear. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should be so encouraging to us. Paul is saying you cannot lose your salvation because you didn't earn it to begin with. It was given to you as a gift. So you are secure in the right hand of the Father. 
If you don't hear anything else, you should go home today and go, yes, that's it. Just, just live on that, because that's great news. And so with all of that as the backdrop, let's look at James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. This is what it says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So it's like, what, what good is a faith like that? The assumption here is it's no good at all. It doesn't help anyone to claim that you have faith, but then to live otherwise. It doesn't bring glory to God, and it certainly doesn't bring other people to Christ. To claim you have faith and to live otherwise actually does the opposite, doesn't it? It doesn't all, that, that's really, okay, you've probably seen this too. I'm sure this isn't you. You're driving, and the car in front of you, you notice, has a Jesus sticker on it. And that car gets cut off. And the guy in front of you in the Jesus sticker car gives them the one finger wave. And you think, great job, Christian. Well done. Way to honor God with your one finger salute so everyone can see. Now, some of you just heard that the point of the story is don't put Jesus stickers on your car. Okay, that is not the point of the story. There's a different point. The point is to say you have faith and not have deeds to back it up is of no use at all. We know this intrinsically when we see that happen. And remember starting in Acts chapter 15, we know that James is leading the church in Jerusalem. So he's a, he's a major player in this church. And the persecution in the church is real. People are losing their homes. People are losing their jobs. People are being kicked out of neighborhoods. I mean, there's real difficulties that, that they're facing, and they need real help. That's why James gives an illustration in verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Like, it's no good to look at somebody when, when you go, how are you? Well, terrible. I lost my job. I'm about to be homeless. You're like, awesome. God bless you. You know, I hope everything goes well. You know, uh, just go for it. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to help you, but you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Just pray. Pray. I, you know, he says, No. That's of no value at all. He says that's not the point. If you say you have faith, then deeds need to follow because behavior follows belief. That's verse 17. He says in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. There must be a sense of living that which we say we believe. It's the whole Jesus saying like, hey, remember, you are the light of the world. Like, hey, you're supposed to be the city on the hill. Hey, let your light shine before men in such a way that they would see your what? Your faith? No, they'd see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. The whole point of having faith in Christ is that orthodoxy would begin to burn inside of you and then would show itself to the world around you. My youth pastor growing up at this church had a favorite saying. He said, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Faith is authenticated in how we live. The assumption is that genuine faith, appropriated faith, will demonstrate itself to the world around us. 
And my thought was, why is that? Well, Paul said to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So there should be something compelling us. He says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I just wonder, I, I thought about this this week, and I'm not, I'm not real proud of this as your pastor, but I begin to wonder, do I wake up every morning going, Oh God, help me today say and live for you in everything I do. Or do I wake up and start thinking about my to-do list? And I hated the answer. Because the question is, do we view our jobs as a place where I show up and God has placed me there for his glory and reflect him in everything I say and do, and then second, to make widgets, or the other way around? Do I view my neighborhood, in my apartment building, in my condo, wherever you live, do you view that as, hey, this is a place that, where I'm supposed to relax and kick back and unwind, and second, you know, to be a light in my neighborhood, or the other way around? Is our life oriented in such a way that we live and breathe and work and interact for the glory and honor of God? Or does that even cross my mind until like lunch or, or, or dinner? Or when I get in bed and I say my nightly prayers and I go, oh, that's right. You know, and so I spend all my time asking for forgiveness instead of starting the day asking for purpose. I didn't like what I found. And, and that's really verse 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my de deeds. He's saying, watch my life. It will affirm everything I'm saying, because the word faith, when you tell people, oh, I have faith, I have faith. That's really an ethereal thing, isn't it? It's like, it's hard to get your hands on. I, I just have faith. And you're like, okay. It can be hard to understand faith without its authentication by deeds. So let your deeds be such that people see Christ in you. If you have to tell someone you're a Christian, you're probably doing it wrong. If you have to tell your employees or your coworkers or your family members or neighbors that you're a Christian, you might be doing it wrong. Because I think a lot of people think, Christian and good moral person, there's an equal sign. If I'm a good moral person, then I must be a Christian. That's not how it works. Christians love differently. Christians prioritize differently. Christians say things that others do not say. They believe things that other people do not believe. They trust things that other people do not trust. And they do things that other people do not do. That's some of your distinctions. But notice the connection in verse 19. It says, you believe that there's one God, meaning you've got good theology. He says, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So if you go to someone and, and, and they say, well, I believe in God, unfortunately your sarcastic pastor too often says, so does Satan. What's the difference between you and Satan? You know, and they're like, huh, huh. I'm like, no, seriously, kind of, you know. Like, because there, no demon ever said, God who? No demon ever said, Jesus what? The demons know what Jesus did. 
The demons know who God is. It's only us, the weirdos, who go, no, 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 no. And so he's going, hey, it's, it's not about going through a David, uh, another David Platt Bible study. It's not about listening to another Vadi Bakum sermon or whoever. It's not enough to just get more data. James is saying it's not about orthodoxy alone unless orthodoxy is renovating the heart, unless what we know about God is moving from here into here and out through here, it's pointless. If your faith is stuck here, He's saying, don't get mad at me, he's saying your faith is dead. He says your faith is useless if it's all stuck here. If it's stuck here and here, it's still pointless and useless. Until it comes out here, it's dead. I thought, I hate this book, (laughs) right? You know, you read this, you think that's terrible, but it's true. Church, if we just gather together to become smarter sinners, what are we doing? We've missed it because truthfully at this point, the world doesn't care if I understand the book of Leviticus. The the world doesn't care whether you can accurately explain the Day of Atonement or not. They don't care if you can differentiate the minor prophets from the major prophets because they think prophets have to do with the bottom line and not someone a thousand years ago. I mean, that might be cool and all, but the world we're trying to reach doesn't care. You know what they want to know? Kevin, are you a friend? That's what they want to know. They, they, you know what they want to know? Kevin, I want to watch how you treat your spouse. I want to watch how you treat your kids. I, I want to know what you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer or Georgia loses on a Saturday. I want to watch you watch your favorite sports team lose and lose big. I want to know what you say and how you act then. I want to know how you act under stress. I want to know how you handle the storms of life. And I want to know if it's any different than how I handle the storms of life. I want to know if you talk about other people behind their back. I want to know if you're humble. They want to know how my orthodoxy affects my orthopraxy. And so James says, you can have good theology, but that's not the answer. In fact, James says in verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? He says, hey, I'll show you. In fact, I'll go old school on you. I'll go Old Testament. We'll go back there. We'll take a look uh, about these people that knew God and how they fleshed it out. The first person he uses is Abraham. Now, when you use Abraham with Christians, Christians generally go, well, it's Abraham. How am I ever going to compare to Abraham? But let's look. See who you, he's going to give two examples. See which one maybe you connect with more. Verse 21 says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, and this is where he quotes scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So Abraham believed God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and then that belief was evidenced in Genesis chapter 22. He was asked to do the ridiculous. He believed and trusted. 
And then his behavior followed his belief. He had a faith that was backed up by his actions. His faith was authenticated by his deeds. And check out verse 24. It says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And you're like, whoa. But hold on. Remember, this isn't a theology book. It's an in-the-trenches book. If I tell you I'm a Christian, but my life doesn't reflect that, then maybe you should start asking me some questions because something's not right. It shouldn't work that way. That's the point. So if you don't like the example of Abraham, perhaps you'll like his next example, which is Rahab in verse 25. It says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? You think, seriously, we're going there? We're going Rahab? That's where we're going? We're going to the prostitute? I mean, she has a terrible reputation. In a church today, if you look at church folk and you say Rahab, they almost always go, the prostitute? She's one of the only people that we still call her by who she was and not who she became. Imagine if we did that to you. Imagine in this room if I still treated you like who you were in college. Yeah, I wouldn't be your pastor. I'm just saying because that was a bad, that was a bad season right there, you know? And so you don't want to, you know, that's, that's not cool. If you treat people by who they were versus by who they're becoming, and I thought, right here, if there was anyone who wants to be remembered by who they became and not by who they were, it would be Rahab. Because very few Christians go, oh, Rahab, oh, yeah. They don't go to the prostitute. They go, oh, yeah, lineage of Jesus. That's always second for us. She's the one who believed God, not just intellectually, but she demonstrated that belief. She declared the power of God. She believed in the provision of God. And she trusted the promise of God. Good theology and good action. Faith authenticated by deeds. And notice verse 26. This is really where he's been leading us. This is where it gets a little dicey. It says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So the question is, if you ask a Christian, they, they, they don't know what to do, especially pastors. Because you ask the question, is it possible for someone to demonstrate good works and not have faith in Christ? Can I demonstrate good works and not have faith in Christ? Now, the, the pastors start saying things like, well, you know, good works, according to Paul, if they're not a believer, it's all filthy rags before God. But what do we do with this? So is it possible? And I would say, I don't know, go down to your local soup kitchen. There's a whole bunch of good works happening there. If you go over to Kind Mouse or, or Florida Dream Center or any of the ministries we support, you're going to see all sorts of people serving and giving and investing their time, but who are people who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus. And really, they have no clue as to really why they would even want to do that. But they can generate good works. Now, do those works save well, of course not. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So nobody comes to the Father except through him, even if you outserve every Christian around. If you're the best folder of clothes of every homeless shelter that's ever exists, it doesn't save you. 
And so, is it possible to demonstrate good works without faith in Christ? Yes. Can you have a genuine faith in Christ that doesn't demonstrate or authenticate itself based on good deeds or good works? And the answer is a solid maybe. Right? It's a solid maybe. Because this is where it gets a little dicey. God has called... God has not called us to be fruit inspectors in regards to salvation. Meaning, I'm not up here going, well, you know what? You've served enough, so you're saved. But you, you need to take another lap around because you have not served enough yet to be saved. I'll let you know when you're ready. You know, that, that's not how it works at all in regards to salvation. And, and so that's not the point. If I don't see fruit in your life or you don't see fruit in someone else's life, I want to encourage you. I want to connect with you and try to figure out what's going on in your life and then maybe walk with you through whatever that is. Why? And I might even stop and reshare the gospel with you. You got the gospel. You go, yeah, because the normative biblical assumption is that the old life changes when you put on faith in Christ. When the Holy Spirit moves in, stuff changes. When the Holy Spirit moves in, it's like whoever, maybe the realtors in the room can correct me. I've never seen very few people move into a house and not change anything. I mean, we start painting right away. Stuff gets ripped out. New cabinets go in. Everything gets renovated. Yeah, the Holy Spirit does the same thing in you. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. That's like awesome news. I needed that from the college years. When I look back over my life, I'm so glad for verses like that, that I don't have to live like I used to live. That's the the get up and dance verses. That's Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about laying aside the old self and putting on the new self through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that's the normative understanding in Scripture, is that your life is different, and not a little different, like radically different when God moves in. And so, what if our lives don't reflect who we claim to believe theologically? What if we claim to believe something, but our lives don't look different? What if the way we live does not reflect the glory and honor of God? I would say, if that's you, generally, I would, if you're talking to me, I would start with the gospel again. So a couple of weeks ago, I handed out this little booklet. I have it in PDF form. If, if that's you, I'm not sure you understand the 33 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation. If I ask you to name the 33, I'll ask you to name 10 things that happened to you the moment you placed your faith in Christ, could you name them? And if you can't, you might want to look into that because I don't think you know who you are or whose you are. Because it says things like the moment you place your faith in Christ, you're forgiven. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you are an heir to the kingdom. You have the imputed robes of Christ now on your shoulders. Over and over it goes. 33 things that will radically alter how you view you. Because you, the old is gone and the new has come. And I would say, you need to reach out to me and I will send this to you in a PDF form or give you a copy. 
Because I'm not sure you've appropriated faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior because I'm not sure the gospel has moved from here to here and out through here. And I want to help. Now, if you say, Kevin, I know I've placed my faith in Christ. I've got it. Then what I'm going to say next is going to sound a little harsh, but it's true. we got to grow up. Like, we got to grow up. Here's what I mean. Too many Christians have prayed a prayer and then sit idle in churches and go, I'm good. I'm waiting for Jesus to return. And I see that nowhere in Scripture. If you can show me chapter and verse, I'm in. But I don't see that. Or maybe even worse, you've Bible studied yourself to death. So in general, here's where this is going to get, you're not going to be happy with me. But in general, you should be in one small group. Maybe two at most. And what I mean by one or two is maybe there's one you go with with your spouse and you go as a couple. Got it. And there might be another one you go to that is uh, gender specific. So it's all ladies or all men or whatever. Got it. But some of you are in like Bible studies on Monday night and Tuesday morning and then Tuesday night and then Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, You're just Bible study to death. You have so many groups you have no time to be the hands and feet of Jesus. What if the church stopped grouping all the time and maybe started living like Jesus some of the time? So maybe we get like one group, two groups at most, and then use all that other time we were grouping in? Okay, I'm going to be really offensive. If you're an Aspen, BSF, a life group, a life transformation group, and you're in all of these, you're in too many groups. Some of you need to get into your first group. I got you. But some of you are in wait, and you need to use that time to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to live your faith out. It's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. This should be way more convicting than it generally is, but it says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. He says teaching everyone. Are you teaching one? Who is it in your life you're admonishing? Who's in your life you're teaching? Who's in your life you're bringing wisdom to and loving and caring for so that you might present them mature in Christ? To this I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I give it my best. Do I give my Bible study my best? Or do I give my orthopraxy my best? You want to know what's impractical this Christmas? I don't want to be a hypocritical Christian anymore. What if the church today said, that's going to be our gift to the world this Christmas? Hypocritical Christians are going to start looking and doing some things different. Now, I can't control my spouse. I can't control my kids. I can't control my employer. I wish I could control all those people. I can't control anything. I can control me. So how about as a simple action step, what if the Christians today got up and prayed, oh God, by your grace, would you allow me today to recognize all day that I've been bought with a price? Help me walk through work. Help me walk through school. Help me walk my through my neighborhood with the humility and the eyes and the understanding that I've been bought with a price, that I might pursue you today in word and deed 
with passion and to lay aside that old self today and to put on the new self today at work, to put on the new self today at school, which is being, being made into your likeness step by step. May I walk in step with your Holy Spirit, hear your Holy Spirit, and follow with great joy. And would you allow me to be more like your son Jesus every day in every way. Father, may we shine in word and deed. May we shine like stars every day before this world. And may that lead to revival in my city. How impractical is that?